while it does seem like it's still a kid's movie and really on a lot of levels it is, the storytelling is a little dark. And I was glad that they weren't afraid to be a little dark because not everybody's life is all sunshine and, you know, rainbows. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This episode, we're going to be continuing our uh, journey through the Harry Potter franchise. And I am honored to welcome to the show for a conversation on Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Terry Sears. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Hi, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So tell people a little bit about who you are, what you have going on, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into all the Harry Potter stuff. Um, well, who I am, I'm just mostly a fan. I have been a fan of science fiction since I was old enough to read. I think that my first book that I read all on my own as a kid was Have Space Suit Will Travel by Robert Heinlein. I think I was in the third grade, so I got started early on science fiction. And I think we initially met through Michael Hinman, a mutual friend who's also been on the show a couple of times. That, that's correct, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of sci-fi connections going on behind the scenes. So what was your introduction to Harry Potter specifically? Well, I was trying to remember that earlier today, and I'm pretty sure that I never really heard of Harry Potter until I saw the first trailer for the movie. Okay. For the Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting. And then I found out that it was books. And I have this weird thing about not wanting to read a book if I know the movie's coming out. Because I spend the whole time going, well, that's not right. Right. That's not right. And that's not right. <laughs> so uh, if I know a movie's coming out, then I'll wait and read the book after the movie's come out. And I liked the movie so much, I sat down and read the first book, and then I read the second book, and then I read the third book, and that was all that was out at the time, I believe. And uh, But I remember going to a convention in Los Angeles, and I was in the middle of reading, I believe, the second one's Chamber of Secrets. And uh, every time that I had a break that I wasn't going to a panel, I would run back up to my room to go read the book because I had a, like a, a real paper book. And uh, so <laughs> I didn't want to carry it around with me because it was kind of heavy. But yeah, I would go up and read the book because I was that interested in it. It was probably the first set of young adult books that I had read since I was a young adult, other than rereading the Chronicles of Narnia a couple of times. Yeah, this this was, I think, the beginning of the real like YA boom after this, like um, what years before Hunger Games and Twilight and all of that. I think this was like the, the kind of resurgence of young adult literature in a lot of ways. And I love that you mentioned that approach as far as, oh, the movie's coming out. I want to see the movie and then read the book because, you know, my wife, Kai, who's been on the show many times and a lot of other people kind of take the opposite approach. They always want to read the book first. And get that pure experience. But I, I kind of prefer the way that you said, where you see the movie, then the book just feels like an expanded version of what you've seen, as opposed to, oh, they, they chopped it all up and streamlined it too much and that kind of thing. It's kind of it colors your perspective on both works quite a big, quite a, you know, quite a big way, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. You feel like if you if you watch the movie first and then you get to read the book, you feel like the story's been fleshed out more for you and like you said, expanded rather than 
shrunken down in the movie condensed version. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm liking it so much that I, um, read all of the books as they came out after that. And then, you know, eventually the books got ahead of the movies coming out. So I believe that, um, I think it was order of the Phoenix when that one came out that I was in line at Barnes and Noble at 11 o'clock at night to go buy the book when it came out at midnight. So yeah, (laughs) I wound up liking them a lot. Yeah. That's, it's a real, I mean, that's part of the reason that I'm doing the Harry Potter series this year, because last year we did the Star Wars saga, is that I feel like it is kind of this generation's Star Wars as far as a cultural phenomenon where people remember waiting on lines for the books or the movies and anticipating each one. And and the fact that they did eight movies over a 10-year period is kind of unprecedented. I feel like outside of something like, you know, maybe the Nightmare on Elm Street series or something like that, you've never gotten that many movies in that span of time. Definitely not with movies on this scale. Absolutely. Yeah, that was pretty amazing that they managed to get them all out when they meant to as well. Yeah, and it's also to, I think, the early 2000s, this franchise and the Lord of the Rings franchise kind of in tandem really helped fantasy movies break into uh, a new, you know, mainstream level because this came out around the same, I think the same, like the month before Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So it's like the the first two of each franchise was like back to back, back to back. Because I was actually working at a movie theater. I was working at, you know, before the call, we were talking about, is AMC going to survive the coronavirus? And uh, around this time of these movies release, I was working at uh, AMC Veterans over here in Tampa. And um, yeah, these were huge. I saw, in fact, I wasn't familiar with the books either. I was working there and just like, what are all these people coming in with lightning bolts on their heads? I don't, I don't understand. What is this? Um, and then kind of discovered it along with most other people. So uh, where does this, you know, before we kind of get into this movie specifically, what, what are your thoughts of the franchise and the way that it evolved and, um, you know, the way that they, the, the way that J.K. Rowling kind of built upon, uh, the stories upon each other, where does this one fit for you amongst the rest of the franchise? I think that she did a fantastic job keeping the continuity between all of the novels because that's really tough. After a while, when you start writing multiple novels in the same universe, it's it's a really easy thing to drop. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? To drop plot threads or to mix up things that happened and say it happened one way, but the book says something else. I've seen that in a lot of series from other authors and I don't remember seeing anything that got mixed up that way in the run of the books. There were a lot of things that you thought when you read them the first time, what the heck is this? And then when you get later into the story, you go, oh, that's what they do. And then you go back and read them again or watch the movies again. And you go, oh, I can see that now where that was a hint that I just didn't know was a hint. Yeah, I really wonder how much of that she had planned from the beginning and how much was kind of, you know, picking up things that had been that had been introduced earlier and sort of not really retconning them because she didn't like you said she didn't really change anything but just fleshing them out i always think of um in the first pirates of the caribbean movie which is a random reference compared to this but uh, there's the compass that you just sort of assume that it leads to tortuga or wherever and then in the sequels they actually say oh actually it points to wherever whatever you desire most kind of thing and and it didn't contradict the previous movie, but it expanded on it and really kind of deepened the lore in a big way. And right. I think you see that here, too, where, I mean, obviously, spoilers for like a 20-year-old movie, um, where the uh, the diary ends up being one of the horcruxes later in the, at the end of the story and the way that that all kind of comes back around. 
I think is is really kind of genius in that you don't really, you know, the, the last couple of movies, which is why it had to be split in half, are, everything in there is critical. I mean, in this first, the the first couple of books, I think, and movies are are kind of a pair on, on their own, and we'll get into exactly why. But as you go on, they had to really trim a lot of the book out in order to fit it into a two, two and a half hour movie because they were so rich and so dense and like the world building was so extensive. Yes. And sometimes I think that that was a, they did a good job of that. And sometimes I think they did a really bad job of that, the cutting things down and out, you know, to squash them into two hours. Yeah, I think I talked with uh, Bree on the Sorcerer's Stone episode prior to this, like the Marauders map and some of the stuff there with the uh, the friend of the group of friends with um, James Potter and Sirius and all that. That whole backstory was kind of fumbled in the, in like I think films three through five. There was there was no convenient place for them to drop it. I think later on and then just forgot about it. So that's always yeah. a little frustrating. And also, I remember you guys talking about the fact that some of the stuff was, um, oh gosh, um, left out and very confusing for the people who had never read the book. Yeah. That if you'd, if you'd only seen the movies that you left some of that story going, I don't understand what's going on. And, uh, I think that might be the only criticism I have of the franchise in general movie wise is, is that because I would go and ask a couple of my friends after one of the movies came out saying, okay, what do you think was going on there to see, did they get out of it? What I got out of it. And most of the time the answer was no, because they hadn't read the books. And so things didn't make sense to them. Yeah. They don't really clarify a lot of the, the backstory stuff with some of the supporting characters, which is unfortunate. But um, I think at this point in the franchise, it's still, it's it's still but it's before the series kind of I don't want to say upgraded because that's reductive to the first couple of movies but sort of expanded its scope and and really got a lot uh, darker and deeper and this is still when they're kind of quasi kids movies like you know dark kids movies but still movies that are like uh, not towing completely into the violence like there's no deaths even in this movie yet uh, aside from I guess Tom Riddle's memory but. Uh, you know, I think we're like pretty much leaning right into the movie. So, right. Yeah. The only people that got killed were ghosts. Pretty much. Yeah. No, everybody yeah. gets petrified conveniently enough. Not, uh, you know, you look in the basilisk straight in the eye and it, and it takes you out. But that doesn't happen to everybody here. They're like for multiple different reasons. But I think now we're just leading straight into the, the story of the movie. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets right now. One year ago, he learned the truth. You're a wizard, Harry. And his first year at Hogwarts school became legend. And so, for Harry Potter and his friends, another year begins. Bloody birds of menace. The education in the magical arts continues. Pixies. Laugh if you will, Mr. Finnegan. See what you make of them. No! <laughs> Old rivalries grow stronger. Slytherin's got a new seeker. Malfoy? You'll never catch me, Potter! And something in the school's dark past will be awakened. The Chamber of Secrets has indeed opened. 
That was a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets from 2002, directed by Chris Columbus. So as we were saying, this was released just a year after Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, and you can tell, I think, between the first and the second, how how little the cast has changed. But the time you get to the third one, which came out, I think, like a year and a half, I think they started doing roughly a year and a half between movies after this point, just so everyone could breathe for a couple months in between. And I think you can tell because the cast looks much, uh, there's a much more negligible difference between one and two and two and three. I agree. Yeah, the second movie came out in 2002 and the third one came out in 2004, but I forgot to go look which month. So it was at least a year and a half. Yeah, I think this, yeah, so it was November 20, 2001, November 2002, I think like June 2004, and then like fall 2005. It's like, I remember it because my brother Freddie and I were, she, he was really big into the beginnings and the, and the movie. So as I was rewatching this, I was like, damn, I've seen this a lot because I remember all of this, like really, really detailed, like as I was watching it, because I hadn't seen it in, I think bef- since I introduced Kai to the franchise, like, a, you know, maybe six years ago or something like that. Uh, so just going back and, and revisiting, it was kind of wild. When was the last time you had seen it? I guess until recently. Actually, I was channel surfing around Thanksgiving or Christmas and it was playing on like Freeform or something and wound up catching it there. Okay. Yeah. I think I before think, that probably been, you know, five or six years at least. Right. Right. Exactly. So, uh, this one also has, like I said, Chris Columbus directing, and I think his style works really well for these first two because there is a certain there's, there's a certain warmth and sort of sense of wonder to both of these stories. Do you think that uh, do you think that his style uh, fits the second one as well as it does the first one, or would you have preferred to see uh, a bit a different filmmaker come in at this point? I think that having the continuity in directors between the first and the second movie was a really good idea because that, that you still like got to see the characters and the storytelling in the format that you had become accustomed to in the Sorcerer's Stone. I think that if they had changed directors between one and two, that might've been a little bit too jarring, especially with the movies only being a year apart from each other. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think, um, I think you need, you might've needed that early on too, because you just, the first one sets the tone and the second one just the first one introduces everything really is what it is. And the second one, it kind of gets you a little bit deeper into the world and it gets the audience, I think a little more comfortable and accustomed to what the tone of the series is going to be going forward. And then from that point, I think, you know, it's just all bets are off three and four different directors. And then five is when David Yates just take, takes over until the end. Uh, where does this one actually rank for you within the, the franchise? Oh, wow. Um, hadn't really thought of that. I don't know. I, I liked them all for various reasons. Yeah. I never had any that was least my favorite, except perhaps uh, the Half-Blood Prince. That might be my least favorite of them all, but it's hard to say. That's fair. That's fair. I do think, and this is my main my main criticism, because I do like this movie. I like all of them, all of them really, but none of them are actually are bad in my book. I think that this one suffers in a little bit because I think in here it feels like you can feel the length in this movie. At least I did a little bit. It's two yeah. hours and 40 minutes and it doesn't need to be. It's one of the shortest books. And I think the problem here is, and I think this is why 
Columbus is good for the reason that I just mentioned here, but I think it's good that they shifted off of him for the next one because I think they could have slipped into sort of a, a sense of complacency. I do because I feel like the story and the script in this movie, which is weird because the same screenwriter wrote all of them except for five, uh, is very slavish to the material. Like you can almost feel the chapter breaks in the movie itself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, I do. And every time I have watched this movie, except for it, the time I saw it in the theater, I always get that same feeling that you were mentioning about this is just a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. Because by the time you get to the scene at the end where Harry's fighting the basilisk, I, I'm like, okay, is it over yet? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, Because I, I clocked it. I think it takes roughly 45 minutes for uh the harry to stumble upon the you know the the chamber of secrets has been opened the the blood on the wall and the conversation with mcgonagall explaining what the chamber of secrets is that shouldn't be 45 minutes into the movie that should be like maybe 30 minutes in like i feel like they could have trimmed 10 to 15 minutes of 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 setup of um like the cornish pixies that kind of goes nowhere and there's like three or four scenes establishing what Lockhart's deal is. You know what I mean? I feel like it could have been streamlined a little bit more and just kind of tightened. And I think that uh, maybe Columbus was a little bit, uh, maybe not necessarily indulgent, just like kind of treading carefully and trying not to piss off the rabid fan base that we, like we were talking about earlier. Yes. Well, I, the Cornish Pixies scene, I, I understand what you mean about that. That was, it seemed superfluous. Yeah. But in the book, there's so many scenes uh, that tell us that Gilderoy Lockhart is a bumbling idiot. And most of them are cut out for the movie. So you have to have at least one scene to show exactly what kind of an inept wizard that he really is. Right. So if you don't have the Cornish Pixies scene for that, then they needed to have picked something else. Yeah. And the pixie scene is just funny too it is it's fun and that's the thing it's like i'm not necessarily even knocking the movie i'm knocking the movie's like structure and length as much as because taken on its own it's a fun it's a fun scene but it don't feel like the story necessarily needs two hour and 40 that's i mean that's almost the length of a lord of the rings oh yeah i I agree (laughs) you know a little over two hours is not bad but over two and a half is just you got to have a reason to do that right and i think that there's some of the scenes that could be shorter or knocked out but if you got to make a trade sometimes if you knock out this one thing you need something else and i i just i just think that you you definitely needed some of the extra stuff to show just how horrible a wizard gilderoy lockhart was because yeah yeah he was an idiot (laughs) i think that's kind of a good transition into some of the new characters because we meet several in here as we were saying the second one really kind of expi- like the first one introduces the world. The second one is like, all right, you know what Hogwarts is. You've, you've met the Wizarding World. Now let's really like set the pe- set the pieces on the board. You know, uh, right. is really what, what's happening here. So I think the first one and this character that you mentioned, Lockhart, Gilderoy Lockhart, is not prevalent in in any other films. I know he shows up a couple times in um, in the novels, just like here and there. Uh, what were your What were your thoughts of uh, Kenneth Branagh's performance here, and it sort of sets off the trend of every school year there's a different Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, which is one of my favorite running gags in this franchise. It's just um, always different reasons, but, you know, it, it, it's just a cursed position. Yeah, and it reminds me of the thing from Dinosaurs. Oh, no, we need another Timmy. Um, 
Yeah, I, I thought that Kenneth Branagh's portrayal of Gilderoy Lockhart was perfect. He was the right amount of smarmy and trying to get on your good side and while simultaneously not understanding any of the social cues from anyone around him. No, the, the way that he um, in the bookstore when Ron's like, oh, mom fancies him. And then and um, Mrs. Weasley and all the girls, all the like young girls are all like swooning over him. Oh, yeah. And all the guys just like Ron's like makes his face like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> all the guys are just like completely um, confounded. Uh, there's a moment later, I think in the it might be in the Cornish Pixie scene, actually, where he says he makes a joke and he like does this like <laughs> like giggle at his own at his own joke, which I love. I love Bron. I, he lands those comedic moments. It's just, it's just so much fun to watch. Definitely. And then all the girls are swooning at him again in that scene. And you're right. It is the Cornish Pixie scene. And all the girls are sitting at their desk going, oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. So that also perfectly portrays boy, the difference between boys and girls at that age. Yeah, where, exactly. Yeah, the I girls started to like boys or if you're into other girls or, you know, kind of thing, uh, girls seem to like other people. We'll just put it that way right. by that age. And the boys are still generally confused and <laughs> they don't understand. So. No. And you get the general vibe that the, you know, all the, the women are, are just kind of, well, the, you know, Miss Weasley and the younger women are, are kind of fawning on Lockhart. And then, but you still get the understanding that all the wizards in the school know that he's that he's full of shit basically because because yeah. McGonagall is like oh we'll let you take care of it after all your you know your skills are legend because kind yeah. of be like all right put your money where your mouth is Lockhart <laughs> and I love that too I do, I do too I, I made a note that um even Snape was like you know had his number because he's like weren't you just saying last night about how you knew who was uh, responsible yeah <laughs> He's, he's like, really fun in this. I yeah. I, I'm I'm sorry that we never got a chance to see him again in the films. I, I was always hoping he would pop up for a cameo here or there. Yeah, that would have been fun. So obviously Lockhart, who <laughs> his memory wiped by the end of the movie, uh, bring, you know, which sets up Lupin for the next one. Uh, Dobby is actually the first new character we meet. So this was again right around the time of this is the same a month before Gollum. Uh, is introduced in Two Towers a couple years after Jar Jar Binks. Again, this is like right when like CG characters, all CG characters are sort of in its infancy at, at this kind of that technology is at its infancy. I actually think, even though it's been 18 years since this movie, actually the Dobby holds up pretty well, all things he considered. Does. Like I was he, surprised by that. He still looks like he's a real person to me that, you know, I'm watching an actual house elf, not a CGI character. Right. And I wonder, you know, if they just gave him, spent more time and more care on, on Dobby because the troll I mentioned on the podcast for Sorcerer's Stone, the cave troll in that or mountain troll or whatever it is in, in the first movie looks right. so rough and it does not hold up at all. Uh, right. And this is just a year later. So I wonder what that's about. Yeah, I don't know that maybe they learned from the first one or maybe doing something huge like the troll was a lot harder than doing something tiny like Dobby. Right. I'm not I'm not that well versed in how to create CGI, so I'm not really sure about that one. But I did want to mention that I I was looking at who played some of the parts in this movie. And I never realized that Toby Jones did the voice for Dobby. Mm hmm. And Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I know, because I've seen Toby in plenty of things, and I always spot him, but he just his voice was so different that I didn't recognize that it was his voice. Yeah, I I want to I should have looked this up. I want to see some kind of some video because whenever I recognize 
and a voice actor or I find out who it is. And I'm like, what? I always want to see video of like them in the booth recording the dialogue just to see what it looks like to see that voice coming out of that mouth. So I should probably kind of want to look that up now after this to see Toby Jones performing Dobby if any of that's on YouTube or anything, because that would be really fun. Yeah, that's always fun. I like to see how people do that, how that performance art works. Right. Because it's very different than regular acting. A hundred percent. And I think Dobby is also is also a good example of what I was saying earlier, that this movie does feel like it's still kind of a kid's movie because Dobby is a little more on the on the kid-friendly side. He's obviously there to be uh, to appeal to children, not like in his obnoxiously away as, as Jar Jar Binks, but just he has sort of that kind of physical you like hitting himself with the lamp and like punishing himself and then his, you know, his voice and his look and all that. And so I think that's a little bit of, of um of what I was meaning by saying that it feels like it's sort of more tailored to younger audiences than later on. The next time you see Dobby, he's in it for two seconds and they freaking kill him off. So, I mean, it's spoilers for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one. Um, but it, I, you know what I mean? More often than he does in the movies. But yeah, I, yeah I, I, I do know what you mean. And I was going to add to that, which was the storytelling progresses in the format as the characters get older and the actors get older. So you're not having the same kind of storytelling in the first year as you do in, you know, years five and six, et cetera. Right. I think it's a little bit of, as you were saying, kind of the the real life analog there, because, as, you know, the best sci-fi fantasy and horror is sort of metaphors for real life. It's sort of the, the the wizarding coming of age, kind of like something like Buffy, which is Buffy growing from a teenage girl into a woman, and it's sort of her coming of age battling her demons, literally, in that case. And I think it's it's a little bit of that kind of thing. Like, as they grow older and they get deeper into, you know, their adolescence, things become more complicated, things get darker, they have to kind of fend for themselves. I mean, Harry sees his authority figures li- gradually stripped away movie by movie until by the end, it's basically him against Voldemort. And I, I think that it's that development, that evolution is really palpable in these movies. And I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I sort of said that it's kind of a kid's movie, but it is, the, s- the storytelling is definitely a bit more sophisticated. There's definitely much darker in, in some respects. I mean, you know, this... Ginny was in a in a trance writing about her own kidnapping in blood on the walls of the school, I guess. So things like that, it, it's, it would be kind of spooky to, you know, younger audiences. Yeah. I remember reading once that JK had said that the reason that she had things get more complicated and the characters definitely get older and that things are a little bit darker as you get into the series is that she said that she wanted the characters to age with the readers. Mm -hmm. So if you started out being the same age as Harry Potter, well, you're going to be older by the time you get to the last book, just like Harry is. Yeah. Yeah. Hermione, everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. You watch these kids grow up and and they grow up, they grow up with each other over the course of 10 years. They spent a decade making eight movies together. So that's, you know, I think that you've, you know, the um, Emma Watson and Ripper Grint and Daniel Radcliffe has said those as much as in interviews. They're basically like they consider each other kind of siblings because they they went from like 12 to 20 something together. So. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that, that definitely shows in the storytelling uh, in a big way. I love so I love Dobby. We mentioned Dobby. I, I think he's he's really fun character. Uh, and I love that he's also kind of a, a stealth badass at the end, too. I want to make sure I throw that out there. Yes. <laughs> right around the same time that uh, Yoda was, we were discovering Yoda was a stealth badass. 
Uh, we, we find out Dobby's a stealth badass too, the same year and everything. Absolutely. Um, and I was going to ask a question about the end scene. So in that same one where we find out that Dobby's sort of the badass because he's um, protecting Harry right after Lucius accidentally freed him, right? Right. And Lucius is about to utter a curse. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me, had we ever heard the killing curse uttered at that point? Nope. I do not think so. I don't think, yeah, I don't, I remember going back to this movie and be like, he was about to say Avada Kedavra, wasn't he? Exactly. And I thought when I was watching it that I said, I don't think we'd ever heard that before. So we only heard the beginning word of it. So at that point um, in the movies and in the books, too, if you'd only gotten to the second one, you don't know what he was about to say. So you only get that info later on. And then you come back and go, oh, my gosh, Lucius was about to kill Harry. Yeah. And stopped him. Yeah, exactly. And I I love that detail. And I was when I was watching it this time, I was sort of one, wanting to see if the subtitles on my DVD would pick that up. Did not, did not make it pick up, didn't subtitle that at all, like the Avada oh, really? part. Okay. Yeah, but I definitely recognized it. It's pretty clear that he's saying Avada Kedavra. And um, I think it's, again, in a way that this movie is able to be darker, but sort of slip it under the table about how dark it's actually trying to be. Exactly. And I think that that was a brilliant thing that they did in that respect. And again, I don't think that they would have done as good a job in this second movie if they had had a different director. So I think it was a really good idea to keep the same one for both the first two movies. And then as the characters are getting older and the story is progressing, then it's okay to switch directors and tell the story in a little bit different way because now they're older and you can't tell the same story for a, you know, 14 year old that you do for an 11 or 12 year old. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it, so we also get, you know, you mentioned Lucius, and I, I think we get a lot more of the adults uh, set up in this movie. Like we get uh, Lucius Malfoy, we meet the Weasleys, the, the Weasley parents. Right. I mean, I think we meet Julie Walters for two seconds in, in Sorcerer's Stone at the, the platform, I believe. Um, right. But but yeah, you get a little, you, you see about the Ministry of Magic, you meet Cornelius Fudge. There's a lot more of... This is the uh, infrastructure of the wizarding world in this movie. So how did how do you think that unfolds? And, and uh, what did you think about them kind of setting that up for obviously down the line, you know, greater stories to be told? I did like that. I also noticed that we did get a glimpse of Hermione's muggle parents in, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you get to see that, yes, indeed, you know, she, all the children have parents. You know, we get to meet some of them. And sometimes you get to see, ah, oh, that is why the child is like that. In the right. case of you know, where you go, hmm, does yeah, that apple didn't fall far from that tree. Right. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Jason so, Isaacs is so great in this movie too. Just kind of chewing up the scenery. Perfect. Yes. He's he's really good at chewing scenery. Yeah. And he's just yeah, he's definitely good at that. I don't know if you've ever seen um Star Trek Discovery. I have not. Oh, okay. So he spends the first season of Star Trek Discovery chewing up scenery there too. So nice, yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, it was really funny. We were watching. I had some friends over when Star Trek Discovery first came out. We were watching it, and one of my friends said uh, about Jason Isaac's character, he looks really familiar. <laughs> and where have I seen him before? And we're like, Lucius Malfoy. She said, No. <laughs> 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 that IMDb and prove it to her. Nice. Uh, 
She did not believe it was the same actor. He looks so different. That's the point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, just in the in the bookstore, like his intro, it's just mm-hmm. he's a, it's immediately has that chilling vibe that we thought Snape was giving off in the first one, whereas Snape is obviously a way more morally gray than he is like pitch black. Uh, right. You know, at least throughout the series until the, the question is, well, how black is Snape? Like, how how dark is he? Just, uh, yes, yeah, Lucius is like, I, I wrote down in my notes, he's a, a shade master because he tears down the Weasleys and, and Hermione's parents and, and he slips the book into Jenny's, uh, you know, cauldron. bucket, the cauldron there. Yeah. Yeah. And all while, you know, giving side eye to Draco, you know. Yeah. So. You know, watching him and see where he's going. Absolutely. I actually think one of the more interesting characters in retrospect of this series is Draco Malfoy because he starts off as sort of like, you know, the stereotypical like mean kid that would be in like every high school movie ever made. He's like, oh, you'll see, you'll get what's coming to you. Wait till the big game or whatever. And then obviously literally in here we get the two of them facing off on the Quidditch court. And, uh, you know, their rivalry sort of translates into that part of the uh, the school as well. But just kind of how he, he we see him develop over the course of this franchise from the first one to the here where where their rivalry is sort of still building uh, getting a little more understanding of how his father is, like you were saying, where he how he got to be the way he is. Uh, and then how his his relationship with Harry sort of turns towards the end, like you, we were saying about Half Blood Prince, and how he actually becomes more of a more of a victim than anything else later on. Yes, and I always got the feeling by the end that Harry and Draco were at least friendly to each other, and they mm-hmm. were no rivals. And Draco kind of understood that he didn't want to be on the dark side of things. Yeah. Dad was. Yeah, he didn't want to take after his dad in that regard. Yeah, exactly. And in, in you know, speaking to chewing scenery, Tom Felton just leans into that Potter like every single time. He says every time he addresses Harry, he says his last name <laughs> like with that same sort of venomous yeah. grimace. Literally spitting it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh so you get a lot more of him. I I really like Malfoy as I said in this. Uh, the little subtle things like in the bookstore ripping like reading something in a spell book and like ripping the page out and putting it in his pocket or in the infirmary yeah. after the Quidditch match and Madame Pomfrey is like, "Oh, Mr. Malfoy, you're free to go." <laughs> He's just whining for no reason. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And Harry, meanwhile, has no arm and he's just like chilling, hanging out there, sitting up exactly. normal. It's so great. Like it's it's that that sort of like privilege that he has being raised by Lucius, who's just like, oh, you know, pure bloods. We're so much better than everybody. It's a and again to the real life real life analog, it's that's kind of how people that are raised to be, you know, white supremacists or whatever, that's how they view things and that's normal to them. And I think it's it's interesting to see that kind of perspective with you know Malfoy calling Hermione a mudblood and all of that I think that's it's again to the point of the movie being darker I think that's that's one example in which it's sort of leaning in that direction absolutely yeah and then later on in other books we get to meet uh Draco's mom Narcissa Mm -hmm. which her name tells you everything you need to know about her (laughs) yeah not not uh not subtle with the uh the symbolism there Rolling. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> exactly. About as subtle as a dump truck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with the little relationship things that I, I love all that, like Ron jumping to uh, Hermione's defense, uh, Ginny jumping to Harry's defense. You're like, oh, those are those are your future couples right there. Um, yeah. You don't really know that at the time. <laughs> no, you know? no, you don't. Exactly. 
time thinking, well, you know, Harry and Hermione will probably wind up together and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And then it's cute because it builds over the course of the franchise. I think in, it might be the next one where like Hermione gets scared or about something and like, like jumps and like grabs Ron's hand, like little things like that. You're like, oh, yes, exactly. (laughs) I love all that. That's a lot of the goes back to the things that I was talking about where the the characters are just build correctly through all of the novels and through all of the movies. And that's a lot of little things to got that you've got to remember to tie together when you're writing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Absolutely. Uh, we also meet Moaning Myrtle, uh, right. Shirley, Shirley Henderson, who now I, I, uh, I am, uh, I don't know if you even know this, but who did the voice of Babu Frick in The Rise of Skywalker and has appeared in other things. She's one of those like everywhere type actress, uh, actresses, which I think is really interesting. So she's really fun in this as well as, and adds new dimension. And I was watching the movie trying to f- pinpoint scenes that didn't really have any, you know, contributing, uh, you know, con- didn't really contribute anything to the story. But Moaning Myrtle really does fit in this story like a glove. I mean, she is kind of the whole point of the movie as, as it turns out later on. Absolutely. And it, yeah, as a matter of fact, I had written down a note about Shirley playing Babu Freak. No, see? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember, although I had gotten her mixed up with somebody else, with a different actress, which doesn't really matter, but I'd gone to look her up because I was trying to remember something about her. When she did that movie, she's playing a high school kid, mm-hmm. right? She was 37. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, she really looks like she would have been in high school. So she's just blessed with uh, being, uh, having the, a young face. Yeah. I think, I think it's the, the pigtails too, and the glasses and who, maybe the glowing, they're able to sort of make her look a little younger because she's a ghost. I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot going on there, but it's a really, it's a really fun performance, uh, you know, over the top, but in like the best way. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, she needed to be. Yeah, and all the giggling and yeah, <laughs> throwing things through her. I thought that was funny. Too. Yeah, I, I love her. In that. Your first time through everything, whether it's the novels or the books, you're always convinced that Snape is just out to get Harry and he doesn't like him and he's just evil. And like you were saying about um, Malfoy, you know, he's just black, right? Um, but then you find out that no, really, he's gray. And, you know, when you get to the end, and like you said, spoilers, um, you find out that all this time that he's been protecting Harry as best as he could, when you go back and rewatch or reread those scenes, you, you get a different view of them. Because the first time around, you're like, oh, really, he just hates Harry. And then you go, oh, no, I see where he's trying to take care of him. And he's trying to watch out for him. Yeah, no, and, and you also, when it's revealed that he hated James Potter and loved Lily, I think you you could see a lot of how he's like, yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, if anything really threatens Harry's life, I will step up and defend him because that's Lily's son. But at the same time, you know, if I could perpetuate a little rivalry and make life a little shitty for Harry Potter, you know, that'll, that'll be kind of mine. <laughs> exactly, yeah. He's never all good and he's never all bad. And when it came right down to it, he, you know, Snape did the right thing. And uh, I just love the way Alan Rickman portrayed him because that was how I had Snape pictured in my head when I was reading the books anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll get to that, you know, later in this, this podcast series talking about the last one, but I think, I do think that final like flashback sequence 
of his memories is probably one of the best sequences in the entire franchise, just because it's encapsulate like in one instance, like you were saying, that character is completely, completely recontextualizes everything you've ever seen him do. And I, and I love that about, uh, about Snape. And he, he's obviously one of the fan favorites for that reason, because he is so uh, multi-layered. Yes, that's a good word for it. Multi-layered. And you're right. It's just, you go from not knowing to knowing and going, wow, you know, and it's just brilliant writing and brilliant acting both. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's really cool. And, uh, the other thing I think you notice in these first couple movies, and it's you get the whole Chris Columbus warmth, is the the way the movie starts with the soaring music. And uh, actually, I got a little. I, I really like that moment where Ron rescues Harry, and there's like the music builds up, and uh, he's like, "By the way, Harry, happy birthday!" You get that like Chris Columbus, like "aw" kind of thing that early yeah. in the movie, and then closes out with literally everyone in the Great Hall like tearing up over Hagrid. And I think that's the kind of thing that you only get really in the first two movies that like sort of like warm blanket of a Harry Potter movie. I think that kind of ends here because things get so much more intense going forward. Yes. That's a good observation. I like that warm blanket. You know, you feel like all snuggly warm at the end. Yeah, and then yeah. Some of the other ones are like, <laughs> that guy has no nose. <laughs> yeah. Oops. <laughs> No, I, I like, I love all that stuff. Um, also, in the, the first the first act of the movie, and this is a, a criticism that I'm going to transition into something, into a uh, moment of praise, but the first act of the movie, you do have a real feel, feeling of, and this is why I think that after Columbus, they needed someone else. You do get sort of a sense of, oh, here we go again, back to Diagon Alley and back to, you know, Hermione does the Oculus Repero. Again, it's a lot of very blatant callbacks to be like, remember last time we're doing it again, you know? And I think that that's allowable in this one case, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I wonder how, I'm almost curious how Chris Columbus would have done it, like how he would have approached the third one. If it would have been, if he would have kind of changed up his own style a little bit to, to, to fit the darker elements of that story. Like you were saying earlier that he seemed very committed to following the book to the letter, wherever mm -hmm. he did. And the second book opens up the same way the second movie does right. with Harry back at Privet Drive and, uh, you know, and the trip to Diagon Alley and Hermione fixing his glasses and all that's, you know, very much the here we go again version of the book. And then after that, the books also change. They don't open up the same way. Yeah, he's, I think they, some of the books still have him uh, with the, you know, with uh, his family, the Dursleys and stuff, but, Dursley, yeah. but not, not, yeah, it's, it's also like in a way because Chris Columbus did these two, it feels like the, this is like a, a marker for the, this segment of the Harry Potter story because you have Chris Columbus directing both. You have, I think this is almost the last time we get like a real, like full Quidditch sequence. There's a little bit in the third one in the rain, but it's kind of cut short. And then from then on, it's like try wizard tournaments and they're like battles. And it's less about like the kind of the everyday stuff happening school i don't i don't think house points are really ever mentioned again after this movie uh and then obviously this is not due to anything you know but just life itself this is the only the last performance we have with richard harris as dumbledore as well so i mean it feels like in a way these two movies are of their own piece in a in a, in a way that the other films feel slightly different in in a lot of different respects yeah yeah that's a good uh, observation as well about richard harris i wonder what having Chris Columbus directing Michael Gambon would have been like, yeah, you know, 
where whereas you know you had to change out the Dumbledore actor and the director was different. I wonder what it would have been like. And Michael Gambon's take on that character is is pretty different from Richard Harris. I mean, Richard Harris plays him very regal and very straight. And, you know, he's got sort of a whimsy to him. But Michael Gambon is a little more, you know, leans into that a lot more heavily, I think. And so I don't know if that's necessarily the director or just the, you know, the, I, I, you know, I think it's better than if they had had Michael Gambon doing a Richard Harris impression. So I think that it's good that they gave him a little bit of his own spin. Uh, and even Dumbledore, we learn a little bit more about in this movie. We see his office finally, which is super cool. I want an office like that. <laughs> with the yeah. and Fox the Phoenix who who uh, plays heavily into it so I, I like that it's sort of peeling the layers back on uh, on the adult world as Harry is starting to discover more and more of it um, and to the point of the coming of age stuff I think it's it's also you see not only in this movie but throughout the series uh, Dobby says oh you know I had to for Harry Potter's own good like everybody in these movies especially or the early ones is everybody's doing everything to look out for Harry. Everybody's for your own good. It's for your own good. You know, it's like until you get older and then you're able to decide, well, this is, you know, decide, make those decisions for yourself. It's interesting how, how that's, you know, Harry's sort of gradually taking steps out of, uh, out of his childhood and, and entering the real, the, the adult world, like bit by bit and having those layers peeled back. Right. And like you had said earlier, by the time you get to the end of it and he's sort of, for various reasons along the way, cast aside all of his mentors and he has to face the ultimate evil on his own, which is sort of a metaphor for, you know, now you're an adult and you have to go face the world on your own and mm-hmm. you don't have all these other people to look out for you and always tell you what to do. You've got to go and do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. Uh, we were talking about how the, the, who expands the world. I wanted to make sure we mentioned Nocturne Alley, which I think shows up later, like six or something. Nocturne Alley has something to do later. I remember there's this, there's a shop. I think it's the shop where, uh, Malfoy gets that like box or something from the sixth one. I haven't rewatched them in a while. So it's going to be interesting for me to go back and, and revisit that. Uh, the flu powder for the first time we see here. Uh, parcel tongue is sort of expanded on, which again was brilliantly set up in the first one. Harry even mentions that. Well, what did you think of the way that they sort of seeded the parcel tongue thing in throughout? The fact that Harry's hearing voices and Hermione's like, well, it's not a, even in Wizarding World, that's not a good sign. And, and then kind of that ultimate, ultimate reveal that it's a giant snake. Yeah, I thought the first time that Harry is hearing the voices and then Hermione says that to him, I thought, how must that have been? To be Harry at that point and wonder whether or not you're going insane. Mm-hmm. You know, you think you're legitimately hearing voices and then someone else tells you, no, you're not. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, am I really hearing what I'm hearing and why don't other people hear it or is there something wrong with me? Yeah, exactly. And then it, it kind of dovetails into the the beginning of him starting to doubt himself with the, with the parcel tongue, but also... The fact that he was almost put in Slytherin, the fact that he has all these commonalities with Voldemort, you know, it develops later on where he's like, what, you know, is there something wrong with me? What if I go bad? Because he's got the darkness within himself. And I love that, that, that whole idea, whenever you have two, uh, two characters, the hero and the villain, and they're like opposite sides of the same coin, you know, um, whether they're related by blood, like, like Luke and Darth Vader, or whether they're just kind of like 
a systematic response to to from one to the other, like the Joker reacting to Batman or uh, Agent Smith re- reacting to Neo. I, I just I love that dynamic between ultimate good and ultimate evil, and it's sort of that that dichotomy that they you know they can't exist without the other. You see that even in the first one where it's the um, Harry's wand has the the phoenix feather. The only other one's brother is in Voldemort's wand, and I love that kind of stuff. I do too. That makes it things very interesting because you wind up getting things that are on multiple levels. It's not just a very clear, this half of the world is white and that half of the world is black. And you know that most of the world's the gray in the middle. Right. And and, and Dumbledore tells Harry later on that it's, you know, um, the, the hat responded to his choices, that it's the, the choices that would make him different from, from Voldemort and all that, which I think is not only just really cool mythic storytelling, but it's also like kind of a great message for kids being like, you know, even if you feel this way, it's depending on the way you act on things. And it's the choices it's uh, to quote Batman begins. It's like, uh, it's what I, it's not who I am underneath. It's what I do that defines me, that kind of thing. And I love that. Uh, I love that element of the storytelling and then the messaging as far as uh, kind of discovering who you are and all your own inner complexity as you, as you develop, uh, you know, kind of the the inside out thing from Pixar, where it's like, oh, she's got a much more complicated board now, Riley, because you know you get older and you have much more complicated feelings and you react to things differently. And I and I think Harry Potter franchise uh, handles that so well. Definitely, and um, I, I also liked the that Dumbledore helped Harry understand that Gryffindor was where he belonged instead of Slytherin, you know, because of the Sorting Hat had given him a, a choice. Yeah, because he had said, well, you know, the only way you got that uh, sword from Godric Gryffindor is that you were basically worthy to have it. Exactly. It's a little bit of like uh, kind of an Excalibur sort of thing, too. Exactly. That was kind of what I thought of as well, that it was very reminiscent of King Arthur and being worthy of Excalibur or Thor and the hammer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, let's see here. What else? Um, I, I, you learn about the origin of Hogwarts with the four wizards, which I love. And I, I think it's cool that in addition to all of these, at least the first few movies, especially, they have like a real like Hardy Boys, like Nancy Drew style, like mystery solving. But it's it's kind of a I think I think this this franchise doesn't get enough credit for being a such a genre mashup of fantasy coming of age. And then like, like, you know, kids solving a mystery, like it's almost Scooby-Doo in some ways. Um, and then in this movie, it, particularly with the, um, the basilisk and the voices and the, you know, the blood written on the wall, it's really kind of almost like a slasher movie for kids. If that makes sense. Yeah, that does. And you're right. I hadn't thought about it, that it was uh, a little, Scooby-Doo-ish, that's that's actually, yeah, what they're doing. They are off solving mysteries and getting into trouble and no, I didn't do it. And now I've got to go prove I didn't do it. (laughs) Would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for these darn kids. (laughs) Oh, darn. (laughs) Um, Let's see. Robbie Coltrane, still really, we mentioned him earlier, Hagrid, who, who unfortunately kind of fades away a little bit as the story goes on. You see less and less of Hagrid, which I think is unfortunate, but it's again kind of owing to the fact that he's sort of their like surrogate uncle in a way, like kind of throughout the early installments. And then his, his necessity as far as kind of providing information and stuff to them kind of, uh, just dissipates just naturally as they get older. So I think he's, he's still kind of the heart of these first two movies in a lot of ways. They don't need Hagrid to explain everything to them like they did in the beginning. 
as they get older, they need him less and he's got other things to do. And you imagine that at some point, you know, maybe he's actually mentoring some of the other first years that have come along. And we just don't see that because it's happening off page or off screen. Right. Here he's actually even more relevant to the plot, too, because of the Chamber of Secrets being opened 50 years earlier and Hagrid was accused and all that other stuff, which I think is great. And that transitions into the um, the Aragog sequence, which as fun as it is, I feel like it, one one kind of criticism I have with I think the kids in this movie are much better overall, especially Emma Watson. Uh, but I think Rupert Grint, like this is Ron at his most like scaredy cat, like his most like squeaky voice, which I think is slightly overdone in places again, where I think you feel like elements of like the elements of the fact that they're trying to make this movie as accessible to children as possible. Yes. And I understand his being scared of spiders. I'm not really fond of them, <laughs> but I have a friend who would be the Rupert Grint character definitely would be Ron, yeah. um, or worse than Ron. And, I think that if I was going to cut any part of the Chamber of Secrets out, I think I would have definitely made the Aragog sequence a little shorter because mm-hmm. that just a little bit too long for me. You know, they I get it that the spiders are coming from them. And I thought that was awesome that the car came to save them. Yeah. But they could have just stopped at the car came to save them. They got in it and they drove away. Right. You didn't need to like the chase through the forest. Uh, <laughs> I did like, yeah, I did love the the sequence with the car towards the beginning. Like, I always remember that a lot as as a really fun scene. Just, it's one of the, it's, it's standard, not standard, but it's kind of a classic, uh, like, fantasy, family fantasy adventure type thing with a flying car. Just uh, having these kids fly the car and, and uh, you know, it has the cloaking device and then there's the whole, um, there's the whole... Well, it's not even a cloaking device. It's a spell, I guess. But there's the whole scene where Harry almost falls off and they're hanging over the train. It's just like really, it's really, it's really fun scene. And, and I think one of the highlights as far as the big sequences are, are concerned. Definitely. It reminds me a little of the flying car aspect of um, the flying car from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Absolutely. That. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're definitely going for some of that. Yeah. And I always thought that JK had pulled in a lot of things that she probably watched as a kid and, and really liked when she was writing it, you know, making references to things, whether, you know, she, she didn't say, Oh, well, this is a reference to shady bang bang, but obviously, or at least to me, it seems like it definitely is mm-hmm. like little bits and pieces of other things that if you say, Oh, well, this is, you know, this is similar to that and that's similar. And that, but that's always fun because that makes things relatable when you're reading or watching something that you say, Oh, I know what that is. I've seen it before, but this is still different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you take those inspirations from a bunch of different things and create something new. I mean, that's how that, yeah, that's how that works. And it's, it's really, it's really fun. I like, I like that a lot. The, the flying car thing. I love the, the, we said the world building, but like how the magic, the spells, the characters, the like everything sort of used you, you hear spells, uh, used in this movie that, you know, from the first one. And then as you were saying with the Vada Kedavra, you kind of get like a hint of that in this. And then it doesn't really, you don't really see it, uh, pan out until I guess the end of the fourth one, things like that. I, I really love, uh, that they, they're kind of seeded earlier. Honestly, watching it this time, I actually also felt like in a way the polyjuice potion scene didn't really get them that much more information. Like, I feel like if you could have had them, sort of dismiss Malfoy as a possible suspect a little earlier, you could have almost say, done without that. But I like it because in the grand scheme of things, it's it's a really good setup for Mad-Eyed Moody uh, and the kind of reveal with him at the end of Goblet of Fire. Yes, 
So I yeah. like that because we know polyjuice potion exists. But we just haven't, you know, we didn't have it introduced in that particular story. Right. You don't see it a lot. And uh, so it's nice to have anytime you get something that you've seen a little bit before, you can go, oh, that's what that is. Mm -hmm. So everything has its purpose, pretty much, right. uh, ex except for I'm going to go back to my my pet peeve, except for the Cornish pixies. They don't show up again. <laughs> yeah. I just like picking on the pixies. I'm like, what is this doing here? And I know well, you, I, you made your defense. I'm just in, in the movies, but they do in the book. Right. Uh, that, oh, gosh. Is it um, Order of the Phoenix? Is that the one where they're in the in Sirius Black's house and they're yeah. trying to? Yeah. Yeah. The pixies keep interfering. I think that's, you know, everybody likes to talk about the uh, the Star Wars sequel trilogy and how this office wasn't planned out and all that other stuff. I feel like this is kind of a little bit, you know, in these early movies, I feel like maybe Chris Columbus and or J.K. Rowling were like, oh, we're going to leave this scene in because that's going to be important later. And then later it just wasn't important. That I, kind of thing. I feel like that's. Yeah. Yeah. Where uh, that might be a little bit easier with a book. Right. That's hard with a movie to try to decide, oh, well, I can go back and kind of fix that later. Right. And yeah. as you mentioned, the books were ahead of the movies, but not by that much. Like they were only ahead by like a couple of stories and it took a while for them to, you know, by the time they got to the end of the movies, the books had come out like what, the year before or something? It wasn't really, it wasn't, uh, they were pretty on pace with each other almost, I feel like. Yeah, they... Um See, I wrote down here, like, the book for Goblet of Fire came out in 2000, and that movie was in 2005. Mm. And then Order of the Phoenix book came out in 2003, and the movie was in 07. Yeah. And then they started getting a little bit closer together, because Half-Blood Prince, the book, came out in 2005, and the movie was in 2009. So that's the same four-year span between books at that point. And then the Deathly Hallows book came out in 07, and those movies were in 2010 and 2011. Yeah. I think so that, right. yeah, I, I think that's when she, you know, obviously the last one, every, the last two, everything is payoff. It's like, yeah. we're going to, we're going to take every little bit of all the previous six uh, films and we're going to, you know, we're going to bring Umbridge back and we're going to bring the centaurs back and we're going to bring, you know, whatever, everything kind of has its Dobby and all these things that never may show up again in the films, but are relevant in the book that, you know, that story is nothing but main plot. There is no, there's no B plot to the last book. It's pretty much all the race for the core cruxes. And I think that, you know, that's one of the rare instances where splitting it in half, I think makes a lot of sense. I don't really necessarily think you needed that in hunger games or twilight or all these other ones. But, uh, but yeah, here, I think that's, it really, there's a lot of, a lot of story to pay off in that last, that last couple stories there. Absolutely. And plus, it, by the time you got to the movies for the Deathly Hallows, not only was there just all a plot, like you said, but in order for some of that to make sense, they had to go back and pick up a couple of things that they dropped out of these movies mm -hmm. that then they needed for it to for the story to make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So we get to the I kind of wanted to get into some of the stuff towards the end now. Uh, we get to the big reveal that Tom Marvolo Riddle is uh, uh, Lord Voldemort and the fact that awfully convenient that it, it's an anagram <laughs> for the name thing. Um, I know. I don't know if I, I mean, it's like it's a movie thing. I'll buy it. But it's also like 
It's almost like he's like, I am Tom, I am Lord Voldemort. Like, what can I, how can I shuffle my, the letters of my name around to come up with my, my evil wizard name? But sure, whatever, dude. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of other names that, that suffer from the entirely too appropriate, like we were saying earlier about Narcissa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and Lupin, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I love that one, though. He wasn't born a werewolf. He got by one and turned in, into one. So, <laughs> You know, like, did, did, was was he destined for that because you named him Lupin? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, like you said, and you know, you just you can go. Okay, that's cute, and let it go. Right. Uh, the other thing too that I struck me this time is that you know he had Tom Riddle's diary, blah blah blah. So none of the kids. I mean, I guess that they're not they're trying to kind of sweep Voldemort under the rug, but it's like. No one knew Voldemort's real name. I mean, I don't. I get that they didn't want to say Voldemort because it's like you know, he who yeah. must not be named. But it's not like a matter of historical record that Voldemort's name was Tom Riddle. I mean, I, I feel like that's something. You know, I feel like we know Adolf Hitler's name. I feel like that would be something that would be in the wizard history books. You would think, um, but I, I think part of it is that by the time he was Voldemort, there was hardly anybody left that knew who he was mm -hmm. when he was younger. I mean, obviously Dumbledore did. We found that out later, but I don't, I don't know that. I mean, I always wondered that too. It's like, why did no one know that was his name? But then again, I mean, in, in star Wars, I feel like, you know, there's a big reveal in star Wars rebels that Ahsoka figures out, Oh my gosh, Darth Vader is Anakin Skywalker. So people kind of don't know that that's not common knowledge either. So, I mean, I guess there's something to be said about, that and it does seem like the Ministry of Magic, at least late in later movies, really tries to pretend that put their head in the sand and be like, oh, he's not back. He's not a thing. Let's let's just, you know, so it's easy. It could have just been kind of the adult wizarding world just trying to sweep uh, Voldemort and or Tom Riddle under the rug as much as possible, too. Right. A little bit of the Harry Potter version of pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Right. Exactly. You know, <laughs> don't care. Don't look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If we don't look, he's not there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I do love the idea of Tom Riddle's diary, though, and I think that's a really cool way to have Harry, who's sort of developing teenager and sort of realizing his own inner darkness, faced with literal teenage Voldemort and, like, his literal burgeoning dark, kind of almost in a, a little bit older than Harry, but kind of in a similar state of figuring out who he is and what he's capable of. And I think that's a great way to really, as I said, kind of, uh, hit home the fact that these two are more similar than I, either than Harry Potter really wants to admit at that point. That's a, that's a really good um, way to put that. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the fact that the symmetry that in the first movie, it's all Harry, Hermione and Ron uh, sort of solving the, you know, the puzzles and getting to, uh, to Voldemort and or Quirrell. And in this one, it's Harry and Ron. And then in the next one, it's Harry and Hermione. So I like that. Uh, Hermione sits this one out so that the next one, Ron, can sit that one out. And I think that's kind of a, a cool balance between the, the three main heroes and having them each kind of uh, be on go on these final missions with Harry. Yes. And in the Chamber of Secrets, you kind of needed that reason for Hermione to set it out. And, you know, her getting turned into a cat by accident was the reason we got for that one. Mm hmm. So yeah. that where the polyjuice potion also helps out with that storyline. Yeah. Why should the memory? Oh, and I remember thinking um, after the Quidditch scene in this one, 
why does Harry keep playing Quidditch? Because he always gets really <laughs> hurt and winds up in the infirmary. You'd think that after a while he'd go like, hmm, maybe Quidditch is not the thing for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, he always catches the snitch, at least in these first two. So, I mean, you know, worth it, I guess, is, is Harry's answer to that question. Uh, I suppose. <laughs> but, you know, broken limbs or you know, uh, no, li- no bones in this case. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's like after a while you're just like, uh, okay, find another hobby or another sport <laughs> to play. Well, are there any other wizard sports? Not in the movies, at least. I mean, I guess in the books there probably are, but I, you know, I don't think they really make a big uh, deal of other sports. <laughs> it's just Quidditch, Quidditch, Quidditch. Well, he also, I think he has a, a little bit of a thrill seeker in him and clearly as Dumbledore points out, a sort of a, a disregard for the rules as Voldemort and James Potter and a lot of the, actually a lot of the characters in these movies. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, you mentioned in the Chamber of Secrets, I do think that the, the practical effects of the basilisk hold up really well too. I think some of the CG shots are a little... A little dodgy, but for the most part, like I think it looks really well, especially when it's clear that it's a, a large scale puppet or some form. I think that's really cool. And uh, it makes that sequence really uh, exciting, I think. Definitely. Yeah, I think that that held up really well, too. Um, it doesn't I mean, although you know that Harry's fighting something larger than he is, it doesn't look even as fake as the troll from the first one. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I do think the one in that the final act that like the, the journey toward to the chamber secrets and the reveal that it was Ginny the whole time. I do feel like that is, they should have could have developed that a little bit better. Cause we barely know who Ginny is in this movie. Like they don't really right. establish her as a character. I mean, we know she's Ron's sister, but beyond that, you know, she shows up at the beginning. She's clearly like all nervous to see Harry in her house when she's not like, you know, dressed up or whatever. Cause she has a crush on him. That much is obvious from the beginning of the movie. Uh, and she steps up, to Malfoy's face when he's like getting all up on Harry and stuff. So we, you know, beyond that, we don't really know who the hell she is. So to have her be the character that we're like, Oh my God, Ginny. It's like, I feel like they should have had, or maybe earlier in the movie before the, the, the chamber secret stuff really happens. Just a little, couple more scenes with Ginny, just kind of establishing the rapport of that group because we never see any of them engage with Ginny. And, but it's tricky to do that because she's supposed to be under a trance most of the time. So it's like, how to maybe have her interact with the group while they're trying to solve the mystery and then her getting all like scared and running off and then having it later be revealed that, Oh, that's because she was behind it or something. I don't know. I feel like there's, there's a ways that they could have handled that that would have made that a little more satisfying. I think that's a case of where they handled it better in the book. Mm -hmm. Because in the book, they didn't get their Hogwarts letters and have to go off to Diagon Alley the same day that the, that, Harry got to their house. Right. That's like halfway through the summer and he spent weeks there in the house. And so he would have gotten to know Ginny at that point. And so that that's because they shortened that in the movie to having all of that happen on the same day. You're right. Harry never got a chance to really even know who Ginny was other than, you know, Ron's sister. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I just, yeah, I think that's, you know, and that's something that they fix a little later in the story is Ginny becomes a little more prominent as the, as the stories go on and, and all of that. But yeah, that was just one thing that kind of struck me this time. Uh, is there anything about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to make sure we talked about? Hmm. Um, let's see. I can look through my notes. Really. I feel like we didn't mention Maggie Smith and we need to mention Maggie Smith because she's great. Oh, in absolutely. general. Yes, Maggie Smith is just 
awesome. I loved everything I've ever seen her in. Yeah. And I was really, really happy when I found out that she was going to be playing McGonagall. Um, yeah, she didn't get, she wasn't in this movie as much as she is in other ones of them. McGonagall's mm-hmm. just didn't get used a lot, but she's always brilliant no matter what she does. She's also one of those, McGonagall's also one of those characters that even if she's not in it a lot, she, you know, she always gets like one or two decent sized scenes and she always just kind of needs to be there. Like it wouldn't feel right if you watch a Harry Potter movie and McGonagall's not like in the, the crowd of people reacting to something. You know what I mean? Like she's such a, a mainstay. I feel like she's one of the, you know, there's maybe a half dozen actors that are in every single one of these movies that, the, you know, aside from the kids, I guess. And Maggie Smith is obviously one of them. I feel like she is so key to making the adult world of Harry Potter feel grounded, feel tangible, feel warm, but also stern. Like she's got that nice balance of of being kind of the giving Harry the tough love that he needs, but also, you know, also giving him, cutting him some slack when she can tell that he's trying. And I think that, um, you know, I think that she's really... She's a great character. And I think we needed, yeah, I wish we had more of her in these movies, but it's, it's just, yeah, it's good that she's in, in there. I think Maggie Smith needs to be in everything is my point. Yes. Maggie Smith in everything. I'll vote for that. There you go. Maggie Smith in everything 2020. Let's, let's, that would be a better choice for everyone. Um, I think uh, in the scene where uh, Harry's got to go, the first time he has to go to Dumbledore's office when um, Fox winds up burning up. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's sending it. She's like, oh, you've got to go to Dumbledore's office. And Harry just assumes that he's in a world of trouble. Right. And, and McGonagall doesn't say anything. But as adults, we can kind of look at her face and go, eh, there's something going on here. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're <laughs> in so much trouble after all. And uh, but yeah, because, you know, he spends a whole lot of the movie being in trouble for things that he didn't do. So I'm sure he was just thinking, oh, no, not again. <laughs> especially when Fox burns up and then Dumbledore shows up and he's like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do it. I swear. Every time I stand around, every time I'm just walking around minding my own business, I stumble upon crazy stuff. It happens to me and I didn't touch it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So if, and if we don't have anything else to, uh, to say about this one. I like it a lot. I do feel like it's, it's not, it's probably one of my lesser favorites of the franchise, but I mean, it's still really fun and it's still really watchable and I like it a lot. It's, yeah, I don't know. It, this is a this is one of those franchises that it's like really hard for me to find a quote bad one. I think there are better ones, but I think that they're all pretty solid. And you know, even in a movie like this where it feels a little too long and it feels a little too indulgent in places, I think the cast is has that like that natural rapport that they build that, that obviously feels feels more uh, more easy for them to uh, to jump back into in the second time around. Uh, and, and I think it's, you know, it's fun to just hang out with these characters and spend time in this world, uh, even if even if it goes on a little bit more than it should and that the editing's not quite as tight or whatever. Like, you can nitpick it all you want, but it's still Harry Potter and it's still fun to watch, so. And the best part of it to me is that no matter which one of the movies that you sit down to watch, it always feels like you're sitting down to watch your friends. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I know are there's there was the same consistency in character between all of the movies you don't get to one of them and go well why is he suddenly acting so different than he did in this other you know movie right and there's a camaraderie and such a, an extensive supporting cast behind these three leads too that shows up for the most for the most part in every single film 
Yes. Great. And you can tell. You can tell that the actors all like each other. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a huge, that makes a huge difference. Uh, Terry Sears, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Um, let's see. I'm on Twitter. I believe my ID is TN Sears. That's pretty much the really only other place I am besides Facebook. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, this was a really fun conversation and it's, it's a great, it's a great franchise to just talk about in general. Like, I feel like we could have gone on for another hour just just mentioning moments and like little little references to things that would happen. We didn't mention the Whomping Willow, for example, kind of shows up in this, uh, has a more a more substantive role, I think, in the next one, actually. Um, yes. Things like that. So thank you for coming on and being a part of uh, of this series. And we'll definitely love to have you back on talk about something else down the line. Well, thanks for inviting me. I had a great time and I'll come back anytime you want. Awesome. Thank you, Terry. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the low KED. Thank <laughs> you.